The Water Values Podcast, Session 122. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. We have a great show for you today. We have Alan Heyman of Blue Drop, which is a uh, an affiliate of DC Water. And we're going to talk uh, about kind of how Blue Drop came to be. We're going to talk about creating new revenue streams, where those revenue streams come from, where they go. Lots of different things that Alan's going to explain with, uh, to us about, about Blue Drop. And he gives an absolutely fantastic uh uh, interview. So I, I really appreciated his time. And he was, he was absolutely terrific. Uh, so again, thank you very much to Alan for coming on. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, but before we do some typical housekeeping, uh, for those who've rated and reviewed the podcast, thank you so much. If you've just rated it, please consider leaving a review. If you haven't done either, please consider leaving a five-star rating and a review. That review is really important because it helps others understand why they should tune in and, and take a listen to the podcast. So uh, please consider doing that if you've been enjoying the podcast and haven't done so yet. Also want to thank those who've uh, provided a donation to the podcast. That just helps defray the cost of putting the podcast on. Uh, you just go to the website, thewatervalues.com, scroll down a little bit. There's a little PayPal button. You can uh, donate in any denomination you see fit. It just goes to helping defray the costs of putting the podcast on, and it is greatly appreciated. Again, any de- any denomination helps. Uh, I also want to say thank you very much to the New Jersey Association of Environmental Authorities and Peggy Gallows for having me out and giving the uh, keynote presentation at their annual conference. I really enjoyed uh, being out in New Jersey and uh, talking with folks and learning about what the issues are for New Jersey utilities. So it was a, it was a terrific experience, and I, uh, I really appreciate. Uh, their hospitality went having me out at their annual conference. So thank you, Peggy, and the rest of uh, the folks at New Jersey Association of Environmental Authorities. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, and the last thing, you know, World Water Day is coming up, so uh, make sure you, uh, if, if, if there are festivities around where you are, go and support the water industry by showing up. Uh, and if not, you know, tweet about it. Do you know? Do something online. Do something with social media about World Water Day. It's an important. Uh, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you know it's important. So uh, let's let's go out and act like it. Let's spread the word about water. So with that, let's get going. Let's open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go with our interview with Alan Heyman. Well, Alan, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could make fine time in your day to, to come join us. Uh, to start off, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Absolutely. And it is a pleasure to be here on the podcast as well. I was, I was saying earlier that in, in something on the order of eight years in the water sector, I have never been invited to be on a water podcast before. So this is my first time and I'm, I'm really excited about it. Uh, My background is in communications and policy. I have degrees in journalism and law. I worked as a television reporter in downstate Illinois for a few years before making my way to Washington, D.C. in 2000. And I have a background also professionally in nonprofits and government. So I first went to work at D.C. Water in 2010, working under George Hawkins, and I sort of built out and expanded the external affairs function at the utility 
uh, at a time where that sort of thing was sorely needed. So that's how I got into water. Uh, I left DC Water after three years to go work for a national nonprofit and came back a couple of years later to start what is now known as Blue Drop. Okay, and, and first off, thank you very much for that introduction of yourself. And uh, we, are, we are very excited to have you here as a, your, this is your first podcast interview, so uh, welcome. And uh, can you tell us a little about, you know, you mentioned Blue Drop. What is Blue Drop? Yes, absolutely. Blue Drop is a fairly new thing. It has been going for about a year and a half. And back in 2016, DC Water launched a new nonprofit spinoff arm uh, to do marketing of products and services on behalf of the utility. The mission of Blue Drop is, is twofold. The first is to generate some sort of meaningful relief for DC Water's ratepayers, both retail and wholesale. Uh, through cost savings and generating revenue, and also to elevate the state of the water sector by taking what DC Water has built and gotten good at and sharing it with other utilities in the sector. So especially smaller ones that may not have the resources to do what DC Water does. So we have two main lines of business at the moment. The first is the marketing and sale of DC Water's Class A biosolids, which are known as Bloom. You can learn more about that at bloomsoil.com. And the second is a line of peer-to-peer -peer consulting services that we are doing using primarily DC Water and Blue Drop Talent, but occasionally partners from across the country as well. So our main service offering at the moment is showing other utilities uh, the benefit and the how-to of stakeholder engagement, how you connect with your customers better uh, as you prepare to ask more and more of them over time. Okay, so so uh, let, let's let's break this down into kind of three parts, right? First is... First is DC Water's decision to get into kind of, I don't want to say non-core, but, but get into, uh, you know, expand out from the pure, you know, integrated utility model. The second thing I want to get into is, is uh, the, the, the products offered. And the third thing is the services offered. So let's start with that first batch of stuff, which is the decision to, get out or to, to get outside of the box of the traditional integrated, you know, water sewer utility model. And can you, can you talk a little about what was the genesis of this idea? I absolutely can. And I think it's an important distinction to make core versus non-core and perhaps ratepayer versus not ratepayer. So from the beginning, DC water is a municipal utility. It is a unit of government. It has a core purpose of delivering a life-giving service to its customers uh, and it also has permit compliance requirements, as you and your listeners well know. So there is a danger in straying too far from the core. As a matter of fact, there is enabling legislation that created DC Water back in 1996, which is pretty expansive in terms of the amount of activities DC Water is allowed to undertake as long as those activities are in service of the core purpose. So we can't decide just to do any old thing because we think it's going to raise revenue. That's not what we were created for. It's not what we do. That was the framework that we were starting with. Secondly, as far as the need, uh, we recognized that there was a little bit of capacity, there was a little bit of interest, and there was definitely desire out there in the market to capture what DC Water knows as a consulting service. So the question was, how are we going to do this? Recognizing that this is not going to be a huge operation, we are not going to have you know, the amount of talent at our disposal to do something along the lines of what, uh, you know, Booz Allen would do in deploying a field of experts into a client site for months at a time. How do we do this as a utility? 
And what we settled on was the notion of having a small company that is very much affiliated with DC Water and, and partially staffed, in fact, by DC Water would give us a little bit of latitude to do things the right way. So we have flexibility in procurement, let's say, where if we wanted to sign a contract to do consulting for another water utility, Blue Drop as a small independent company can sign documents uh, that are vetted by its own legal counsel and that, that meet our purposes, but we don't have two large procurement departments, say, battling it out for a number of weeks or months over you know, what the best language is for this contract. We just want to get ready to do the work. Uh, and the second thing is uh, we, we have the ability to you know, get out and, and do some marketing of, of this effort with the association with Blue Drop well known, but also uh, keeping it separate sort of for reputational reasons. So you, you, you know, if you have, for example, a city utility that is integrated into its city government, there may be some sensitivity, some local pride in the notion of, well, you know, how could we possibly bring in these, these people from Washington, D.C., and what would they know about life here because we're here you know, doing the work every day? If it's not D.C. Water whose name is on that contract, it might be a slightly easier sell in those environments where Blue Drop you know, is, is, is reminiscent of D.C. Water for those who need to know us, uh, but it is also separate. Right. And, and how, how, does, how, how did D.C. Water go about like, assessing the risk? Because it seems to me that if they're investing in Blue Drop, you know, the, the ratepayer money is at risk. So how, do you, how, how did D.C. Water go about balancing that out and actually deciding that, yes, uh, uh, it, it, it is worth the risk to, to enter into this business? Well, I have to tell you, the question of risk to ratepayer dollars is something that is on my mind every single day because I remain a D.C. Water employee. My time is largely detailed to Blue Drop, uh, but I'm running a small business on a shoestring as much as I can and mindful of the fact that you know what we're spending is, is, is ratepayer dollars and we are entrusted with the stewardship of that money. So we decided to define the stakes uh, fairly small to begin with. We created a three-year startup period. We set a budget. We went to the D.C. Water Board with the knowledge of that budget to make sure everybody was comfortable with it. And it is not something that is um, within an order of magnitude that would represent a significant risk to D.C. Water ratepayers. It's good money. It is money that is important to Blue Drop and important to D.C. Water, but it's not something that if it were just to disappear overnight, it would be an overwhelming risk to ratepayers and result in higher rate increases or anything like that. Uh, the second thing about risk to ratepayers that's notable here, I think, is that when you have a separate entity that is doing the commercial work, it can contain the risk without having to you know, put the, the body of the larger institution that is ratepayer funded at risk as well. So we have that going for us too. And there is, there is plenty of oversight in this work Blue Drop has its own independent board of directors, and the chair of that board is the chief executive of D.C. Water, so there's a connection there. Uh, but the D.C. Water Governance Committee also has oversight over Blue Drop, and I am in front of that committee three times a year with extensive details about where the money is going, what it is doing, and how we're living up to our promise of making D.C. Water whole on its investment, largely by the end of the third year of our existence. Terrific. Now, I, 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 at the end of the interview, I want to circle back after we kind of talk about products and services and, and just uh, uh, talk about the return to DC Water. So let's 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 uh, uh, shift gears and move into uh, the, the products. So you mentioned Bloom Soil. Uh, tell us a little about about the process of 
of generating the bloom soil and, you know, what, what's all involved in that? Sure. And I'm going to seize on your invitation to tell you a little because I was a journalism <laughs> major. <laughs> I'm not an engineer. I will be quickly in over my head if we start going into the intricacies of thermal hydrolysis and anaerobic digestion. But I can tell you uh, that those two processes are what leads to what we now call bloom. So we had a significant upgrade to our biosolids handling equipment back uh, probably starting about five or even more years ago at this point. And the notion was the plant was putting out a pretty good class B, and it was putting out a pretty good class B to the tune of about 1,200 tons a day, uh, which were being land applied at farms, uh, you know, some distance away from D.C. At, at significant expense. So the board took a look at this situation and the opportunity, and it decided we were going to put in the Canby system, which is uh, something that comes from Norway. We are the largest installation of Canby in the world, or at least we were at the time, uh, and the first in North America. So we get a lot of visitors to look at this thing. Uh, but the reason they did it was twofold. One, there was some question of increasing regulatory risks surrounding Class B biosolids. And you know from having interviewed folks uh, around the wastewater business for a long time, first thing you've got to get to is permit compliance. You've got to get those solids off the plant every single day. If there's a reduction in the number of places you can put them, if it becomes more expensive to remove them, that's going to be a big issue for the bottom line at a big institution like DC Water, especially to the tune of 1,200 tons a day. The second thing that the engineers discovered is you can cook off a lot of that water that's in those biosolids. You can generate clean, renewable energy, which we now do, uh, and you can reduce the volume that you're trucking away because there's a lot less water in it. So they built the system, something on the order of about half a billion dollars. It is operational. It is generating power. I believe we power about a third of the entire wastewater treatment process just from the, the Canby system uh, with the hydrolysis. And we've reduced the tonnage to 450 tons a day. So the system is there, and it is working, and it is meeting its economic goals that were set out when the board decided to do it. Uh, but we still have 450 tons a day of what are now Class A exceptional quality biosolids coming right off the belt. So they don't need to be dried or composted or mixed with anything to get to Class A. And meanwhile, we are essentially doing with them what we did for the Class B material, which is land applying. So we have discovered through the creation of this trademark bloom and through some initial marketing efforts in the D.C. area that this stuff really does have economic value. It is good for landscaping. It is good for growing trees. It is good for farming. So we're working primarily in the bulk space at the moment, supplying folks who can take it by their truckload. We have fairly modest sales goals for our first few years of the program, given that there are still 450 tons a day of the material being generated. Uh, but there is significant economic value to the ratepayers of D.C. water here, both through the sale of the material, but more importantly, through the avoided land application cost. And anybody that we've been able to get in touch with and tell them about the product and get them a truckload in their hands to be able to play with and use uh, has been impressed. It's great stuff. And, and so does it smell? So this is a rare moment where I get to wear my wastewater guy hat, my communications guy hat, and my lawyer hat and say it depends on your definition of the term smell. Um, <laughs> it, uh, you know, we had an event when we rolled out the Bloom brand for the public. And we had brought over a pickup-sized truckload of the stuff and put it in a pile on the ground, stuck a shovel in it for the visual. And then some folks who were planting trees near us as part of this event had pulled in another truck and had unloaded some mulch, which they were going to be used to mulch the trees around 
uh, where we were doing the press announcement. And I have to tell you, standing in the open air on a day without too much of a breeze in D.C. one spring, the mulch had more of an odor to it than the bloom did. It smells like dirt. You can stick your hands in it and kind of move. You know, there, there is not the typical odor that you find with a biosolids product on this material, especially after it's been sitting out in the air for a few hours or a few days. So if we had the dried material in bags in a store and you opened it up, there would be no difference in the odor there between that and some other kind of soil product. Yeah. And so uh, if, if, if I can kind of inquire about the, 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 the Blue Plains facility, uh, that was put in place because you needed better, uh, better, you know, wastewater treatment, right? It wasn't, it wasn't developed solely for purposes of, of blue drop. Oh no. There yeah. Was no right. There was no such thing as blue drop at the time. There was no question. I, I think that the folks who had been working our biosolids program for a number of years, very much had in mind selling the material at some point. Uh, but that was not the goal of installing the candy system. We needed better biosolids. We needed fewer biosolids. And I should also add uh, we were lime stabilizing the class B material originally, and uh, it, that equipment needed to be upgraded. Yeah, got it. Okay, good deal. So, um, in terms of, of so right now you're you're selling it in bulk. Is, are there plans to to enter the kind of the more of the consumer market in terms of, of marketing Bloom? That is the hope. We would love to get into the consumer market, and we've had initial conversations with a few commercial partners of ours to do just that. Uh, because we get board members asking us on a fairly regular basis, when can I go into the hardware store and buy this stuff in a bag to use at home? And on top of that, you know, the economics of it are such that if you sell it in a bag, it's a much higher per ton price than if you're selling it in a truckload. So we would love to do that. We are in the wastewater treatment business and the resource recovery business. So there is a lot to learn and a lot to figure out when it comes to how you dry this material out a little bit, how you get it into a bag and how you get a bag into a distribution pipeline. Uh, but luckily, we're working with some very smart people who have high hopes for the material just as much as we do. And I think it'll be not terribly long before you start to see this thing creeping into stores in the mid-Atlantic. Can't say we're going to make a national play like our friends uh, in Milwaukee have been doing for the last 90 years, but uh, you never know. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, in, in terms of drying it out, that raises another question for me. Are you using uh, waste heat? to dry it out or how, how is that? Because, you know, I, I know that sludge drying is a fairly energy intensive process. Uh, so, it, you know, I assume you're, 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 you're being as efficient as, as possible when, when leveraging heat to, to dry the sludge. Right. So I should clarify that at the moment, there's no mechanical drying happening of any kind at, at the wastewater plant. We have a belt press to drive a little of the water out of it before it gets trucked off and sent away, but the, um, the drying activity would be happening off-site in open air. So we refer okay. to it as curing, and you lay the stuff off in a farm field uh, in a big pile in rows. You put a cover on it to keep the elements out of the way, and then you turn it a few times over a number of weeks, and then it's dry. So we are investigating the possibility of drying at Blue Plains, but as you note, uh, there's a lot of energy that goes into that process, so we'd have to weigh the, um, the consequences fairly carefully. Got it. Got it. All right. So, um, let's, let's switch over to the, uh, the services that you're offering. You mentioned the peer to peer approach. Uh, can you explain a little about, about, uh, I know you went into it a little earlier, but, uh, tell us about, you know, the, the types of services that, that blue drop is offering and kind of the, the market it's seeking to serve. Absolutely, I can. So most of our engagements so far that we've been doing for the last year and a half have centered around 
this notion of stakeholder engagement or connecting with the customer better. We have done a little bit of work on customer service best practices. We are offering a service, but we haven't rolled it out yet on green infrastructure program design because DC Water has pioneered some green infrastructure work as part of its long-term control plan. But mainly what we do is we teach utilities how to communicate with their customers better. So the example I can give you is we finished up a project late last year in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, our friends up at Capital Region Water there. Very similar utility to DC Water in terms of how it is organized and actually the age of the institution itself as an independent agency, but smaller, maybe about a tenth the size of DC Water. So they had a terrific communications person named Andrew Bliss who had started uh, and moved into that role fairly recently. And our job was to kind of help bulk up his program and give him more things that he could do as a single person in that function uh, and deploy some of the tools and the resources that we had developed for DC Water for use up in Harrisburg as well. And so we have toolkits and templates and communications plans and timelines and editorial calendars and that sort of thing that we've already built. So we might as well be able to get more mileage out of them uh, by sharing them with other utilities. So typically what we'll do in an engagement like that is we'll spend a period of time on information gathering. We'll collect an inventory of all the materials they already have. Uh, we will assess who their stakeholders are and who the stakeholders should be. We'll interview some of the key management folks at the utility. And we'll go up there and do a workshop and gather what some of the themes are for the work of the actual utility itself for, say, the next year or so. Um, we will bring all that information back to DC and process it, type up communications plans and reports, uh, and conduct the rest of the engagement remotely, which is another thing that separates us from other consulting firms, uh, because it also tends to keep the cost down. So I think Andrew's pretty happy with the work we did for him up there in Harrisburg, and we've done fairly similar things for a handful of other utilities. Uh, just wrapping up a rebranding project for a small wastewater utility up in Massachusetts that we brought in, which has been a, a lot of fun to work on. Uh, and Blue Drop is headed for Denver in April, where we're going to be assisting the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District out there with uh, some similar work. Oh, well, great. So, so this sounds more, uh, you know, it, it's, it's almost like PR assistance or PR services rather than say engineering and that kind of thing. So uh, in terms of, of tips, cause I know DC water, I, from speaking with George Hawkins back in episode 60, that DC water went through a, a big rebranding process itself. And you've, you're, you're bringing to bear a lot of the lessons learned uh, during that process. So, so could you talk a little about how you rebranded D I know, I know this isn't blue drop per se, but how you rebranded DC water, you know, what kind of, what kind of PR lessons you're, you're gleaning from that? Absolutely. I can. Uh, it was as a matter of fact, under George's direction that I was the architect of the DC water rebranding campaign. And it was my team and I, along with the folks at the rest of the utility who carried it out. And there were tremendous lessons for how you do that kind of work at a public institution uh, that we do share with our clients. And I'd be happy to share with you. Uh, I think the good news for the utility sector in general, and for some of the clients we've worked with as Blue Drop, is that the situation is not quite as stark for most of them as it was for the District of Columbia Water and Sewer Authority in 2009. And you know from having spoken with George extensively that the reason the board hired him in the first place was to reconnect with a customer base uh, that had lost faith in its water utility. Most utilities across the country do not have it that bad. There are water quality concerns, there are main breaks, the bills are going up, there are all these reasons why 
utilities ought to be concerned about their image, but the image is not as overwhelmingly negative as it was here in DC in the 2000s. So that was the starting point. It was, it was pretty low uh, morale for a lot of the folks who worked at the Water and Sewer Authority at the time, because coming into an institution that people don't like can be very demoralizing. But the good news is, and was for us at the time, that the bar was extremely low for us improving the relationship with the customer. So the rebranding was probably the most visible piece of a very strategic campaign that we underwent at the time to reconnect with our customers at every level of their lives. So the rebranding was to put ourselves out there as a refreshed institution, as an institution worth taking another look at. We were DC WASA back in the 2000s before we were DC Water. It was the District of Columbia Water and Sewer Authority, and it was probably your best government impression of an acronym that somebody could come up with to shorten District of Columbia Water and Sewer Authority. We had a logo that was all hard colors and right angles. It was kind of hard to figure out and understand and certainly not easy to reproduce in, in small format. Uh, and it just didn't speak well to what the agency was doing and why that was important. So we switched to the logo that's well known throughout the sector today. And we had a public art competition to gather ideas for that logo. But ultimately, George and the staff and I selected our favorite bits and pieces from among those ideas. And we had a very talented staff designer named Ted Coyle actually do the work of combining those things and coming up with the logo that you see today. Ted has actually been involved in doing some of the work with us uh, for other utilities through Blue Drop, by the way. So we rolled that out, but we rolled it out by putting it in places where there were never logos before. So amazingly, we have this enormous, extremely advanced, extremely expensive wastewater plant on the southern end of the District of Columbia that never had signs on it other than the highway exit signs. So we started putting signs on all of our properties across town just to let people know we were there. We put tap water advertising on the vehicles so that if it was stopped in traffic or if you saw it rolling around your neighborhood, you would understand the message that we were trying to convey. And it really didn't cost us more than you know a decal. And we started doing massive outreach events across town. So anytime there would be a big gathering of people, say in the summertime, at a music festival, at an athletic event, we would be there with our personnel, with reusable water bottles, with water to refresh people, having that conversation about what DC water does and why it's important, where the community is. The biggest problem that we had, and this is something that I will go in and counsel any utility on at any time, is that we had lost the ability to tell our own story to our customers. Everybody else was telling the story of DC water and it wasn't a positive one. So in the Washington Post, day after day on the front page would be negative stories about DC water. There was a story, and I, I use this in slide presentations that I give, there's a slide a story about how DC water quality issues were worrying people who were buying and selling residential real estate in DC at the time. So if you can picture DC's economy is booming, we're adding residents by the tens of thousands every year, there are jobs, it's looking great, but people are worried about water quality and it's impacting their decision on where to buy a home. That's a terrible situation to be in. So we redeveloped relationships with the local media. We brought in bloggers for open houses and gave them tours of our plant because you know, the, the, the stuff is amazing and nobody gets to see it unless you make a concerted effort to bring them in to where you are and show them what you're doing. We got on social media for the first time and developed a little bit of a sort of a social media voice and personality. We bought a water drop mascot costume and took it to schools and we do environmental education events for kids these days. So all of this was an expanded outreach effort aimed at making sure the customers knew why we were doing what we were doing and why that was important to them every single day. 
And we do it for a very simple reason. And that is not that there's competition in the universe, not that you can choose, you know, a different tap water supplier, like you can choose a different electric provider or, you know, choose a different beverage out of a vending machine. There's not an element of choice here, but there is an element of choice in terms of what your constituents will be willing to put up with. And we were looking at multiple double digit year over year percentage rate increases to pay for all the massive capital work that we were embarking on. And there are gonna be service disruptions from that kind of work. If you're replacing water mains all over town, you're going to tear up streets, you're gonna take people out of service temporarily, you're gonna make noise, you're gonna make dust. And again, their bills are gonna rise. So you don't wanna go into that situation as a utility when your customers don't know you because there is no reservoir of goodwill at that point for you to tap into to ask more of your customers. So everything we were doing was aimed at building up that reservoir of goodwill uh, to, to choose, I suppose, a water metaphor. Uh, and that's what we did. And it's been a number of years now and we are learning lessons along the way about how you set rates and how you talk about them with your customers. And those are lessons that we've been fortunate enough to share through Blue Drop with other utilities across the country. Right. And so you've, you've, you've developed this reservoir of knowledge and PR acumen. And with, with a product like Bloom, how, how, how is this three-year plan coming along for, for Blue Drop to become self-sufficient and start making a return for the ratepayers? I think it's going very well. Uh, there are many, many eyes upon us, and we have had recently a D.C. Council oversight hearing where that same question was asked. Uh, our board asks it on a regular basis, and certainly the staff are very invested in what's happening at Blue Drop. The consulting business is actually going better than I expected, to be honest with you. Uh, the clients seem happy with the work that we have done. We have proven ourselves more than capable of delivering, and we have prepared all these potential marketing efforts for getting the word about Blue Drop out there and, and sort of you know, getting opportunities for ourselves to pitch the business to folks that we haven't needed to use yet uh, because people have been coming our way. They hear podcasts like this one. George certainly was out speaking quite a bit about both DC Water and Blue Drop in his last days uh, at the helm of the utility. And we go to conferences on a fairly regular basis where people already know us, but they're kind of curious and they want to hear more. So we are busy with the consulting work. We are enjoying it. We are partnering up with other uh, like-minded practitioners across the country to help deliver solutions for utilities in parts of the country that we're not close to, like Denver, for example. Uh, and I think that's going very well. We're eyeing what the next generation of service offerings might look like. As I mentioned, there's uh, green infrastructure on the horizon in many cities. That's something that we have some knowledge and expertise in. And I'm actually also training to become an executive coach, so I hope to coach leaders of utilities as well when I finish training. Uh, on the Bloom side, it has been slow. And it has been slow as we learn the market, as we learn the soils business. And also, we now finally have regulatory approval to begin marketing and selling in all of the states surrounding D.C., where that had been a handicap for us and kind of prevented us from getting into business all the places that we thought we would. So I think the goals uh, that we have set for ourselves in selling Bloom are ambitious, and I think they will lead to significant ratepayer relief. And I'm, I'm pretty confident at this point of our ability to get there. Okay, great. Now, now, what are the characteristics you think that, that have allowed for you to uh, achieve this success up to this point, to the extent you haven't covered them already? Are there any additional characteristics that, that you think Blue Drop has that makes it successful? I think it's the story that we tell about ourselves, first and foremost. So people in the utility sector 
We're very intrigued by this idea of a utility creating its own small company to do the marketing of products and services. There's only a few examples of this sort of thing in the universe to begin with. It's, it's a fairly rare beast. Our friends at uh, Clean Water Services in Oregon have been doing something similar for a number of years. And we looked very closely at their business model when we built Blue Drop because they're also a nonprofit. But it's fairly rare. And so there's this sort of buzzy, well, what is this thing? And you know, what are they doing? And what's it all about kind of aspect that has helped us quite a bit. We've gotten some good word of mouth from our customers that we've had already. We've had some good publicity from doing presentations at panels at various conferences where folks from the water sector tend to congregate. And also, we have this incredibly unusual selling proposition, which is you can hire a consulting company if you're a water utility to do just about anything. There are consulting companies for engineering and communications and leadership and management and finance and whatever you need. We are the only present day public sector water utility practitioners who are offering a consulting service. We understand exactly what utilities are going through because it's happening to us right now. So we have the ability to bring real world lessons learned out to other utilities in the space. And as a matter of fact, we were receiving some feedback, which was not positive, on the impact of one of our fixed bill charges on a certain segment of the community. Uh, we use this to pay for our combined sewer overflow plan. And we were receiving this feedback from the community and getting this, this media attention on it at the same time as I was advising the utility in Harrisburg about how to message its rates surrounding its long-term control plan. So I was able to send those, those news articles the day they were coming out up there and say, this is what's happening. This is what you want to kind of keep an eye on for 10 years down the line when this rate is going to get really big and all of a sudden everybody's going to be paying attention to it. And the last thing that I'll say is that we're nonprofit. So I think everybody realizes our goal is to bring in some ratepayer relief for DC water, but we're not going to build it on the backs of everybody else's ratepayers. It's not going to be as expensive to do business with us as it is to do business with a large, say, multinational professional consulting company. We don't have the private sector markup. Uh, and also, as I mentioned, we tend to do most of our work remotely, which keeps the cost down for the client in terms of hours spent traveling and then the travel itself. Right, right. So in terms of, of an entity that is, or excuse me, a utility that is kind of and again, I, at the beginning, I said, you know, getting outside of the box or non-core, but but is is Blue Drop the future? Are, are are utilities or should utilities be looking at alternative revenue streams the way DC Water looked about, you know, when it when it created Blue Drop? I think they absolutely should. I think they should look under every rock and in every sofa cushion. This rate pressure that we're facing isn't going to go anywhere. It's only going to get worse. And there are things that lots of utilities across the country are good at that DC Water isn't good at. So we don't do, for example, planning for drought uh, because we live in a water-rich area. That's one of the strengths of, of this part of the country. But there's plenty of other utilities, especially in the West and the South, that have done really groundbreaking work on this. And I would love to see them bring it to bear uh, for the benefit of their ratepayers, but also for the benefit of the sector. Uh, and it, it is clear, I think, through the work that we've done to set up Blue Drop and the conversations we've had with our sister utilities across the country that something about the economic model of water and wastewater in the U.S. must change. So this notion that the ratepayers will always be able to absorb everything, uh, this notion that we will continue with these tightening environmental mandates regardless of the cost, the notion that somehow 
you know, the infrastructure is just going to need to fix itself, I suppose. Uh, we, we can't keep going down this road. There has to be something somewhere that can improve. I think part of the issue, and I'm sure you have spoken with other guests about this, has been this incredibly precipitous decline in federal investment in water infrastructure uh, in the last 50 years, let's say. We are dealing with the consequences of these aging systems in cities across the U.S. that the federal government put in and then kind of left to the local ratepayers to maintain an upgrade. Uh, and secondly, we have this incredible fragmentation across the sector. And there's evidence there in, in the number of small water and wastewater systems across the U.S., even in the number of associations that represent the different parts of our industry, which, you know, D.C. Water is one of the big utilities, kind of belongs to all of them, but there are so many. Uh, if we had a way to team up on things that cost utilities money and make them less expensive and easier to procure, I think that would be tremendous. Uh, I don't have a tremendous amount of procurement expertise personally, but it's something that I think we all ought to keep an eye on. Right, right. And, and, and so what advice do you have for other utilities that might be looking into this? For starters, you can call us. Uh, you, can <laughs> <visit>. <laughs> yeah. you can visit bluedrop.co. Uh, to take a look at what we've done. But but in all seriousness, I think I think one of two things could be possible. In a couple of years, I come back on your show and I'm telling you about how we're now advising other utilities on how to set up their own blue drop. Or we have created a network of utilities across the country that are offering services to each other so they don't have to go through the cost and the trouble of setting up a separate entity. Because I think peer-to-peer -peer is part of the future for water. And I think there are more and more utilities that are getting interested in it, not only as the client, but also as the provider. So that's one thing. The second thing is everybody's enabling legislation and everybody's sort of initial mandate, their reason for being, is a little different. There are utilities across the country that have power as part of their mandate or gas or our friends across the Bay in Easton, Maryland, who we've spoken with because they do some pretty phenomenal uh, consulting services on the IT front. They have water, sewer, electric, gas, cable, and I believe telephone as part of their mandate. So they, they're a little more free in terms of what they can offer. Um, the test that I use when we're looking at new business activities at DC Water and whether it fits into the common purpose is, uh, you know, is it something that we would build or buy or get good at in service of what we do for our original ratepayers? Is it a process, a technology, a piece of equipment, a person, an area of expertise? If so, and we've built it, then it is absolutely fair game for DC Water to try to resell that or market it to others so they don't have to go through the time and expense. If it's something that just sort of only makes sense economically or for, for reasons of proximity, the example I give is that DC Water's administrative headquarters this summer will now be located across from Washington Nationals baseball stadium. Be a great location for a hot dog stand on game days, but hot dogs are just not the business that DC Water is in. So, uh, I, I refer to that internally as the hot dog stand test, but I would encourage any utility executive out there to look at what their own hot dog stand test is. Uh, and there could be all manner of services that they're offering to non-ratepayers that could help, you know, pay the bills. You know, Alan, I just want to thank you for, for spending time with us today. We've, we've gone uh, over the, the, the time I, I, uh, that you promised to me. So I, I really want to appreciate or take time to thank you for coming on. And I greatly appreciate your, your, your time with us. Uh, before you leave, can you tell us, uh, for those folks who want to find out more about you and Blue Drop, where they can go to get that information? Absolutely. And, and, and I think the pleasure is mine here. I want to thank you for the invitation. This is definitely the most fun thing I've done all day. I hope to do it again. <laughs> Me too. Uh, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that says about the kind of day both of us are happening, but I guess a different podcast. Um, 
So we are bluedrop.co, not .com, but .co. We have bloomsoil.com. You can also find us on Twitter at bluedropco, and we have a LinkedIn page as well. We would love to hear from your listeners about the problems that they're facing at their utilities, the challenges that are on their desk on a daily basis. Uh, there may be something that we can do to help. Great. Well, thanks again, Alan. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Let's talk again soon. You betcha. All right. Bye. Well, I hope you liked that interview with Alan Heyman. I thought he was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Very, very on point with a lot of his thoughts. And I think he had some really good uh, advice for folks that are considering looking at new revenue streams and how to go about doing that and essentially finding what you're good at. And, you know, obviously in Blue Drop's case, it was uh, uh, at least on the services side, it was it was PR. Um, and, you know, the Bloom product it just sounds phenomenal. So um, uh, it really, re- I, I, I cannot say enough about how great Alan was coming on as a guest. So I, I, I learned a lot. I always, I, I typically do learn a tremendous amount from my guests and Alan was no different. So thanks again, Alan, really appreciate it. Um, well, tell me what you liked about the podcast. You know, leave your comment on the show notes. You can find the show notes at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one, two, two. You can tweet at me at my handle, which is at DTM one nine nine three. You can tweet about the, the podcast using the hashtag water values. And uh, don't, you know, don't, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter where the, that is growing exponentially. It's uh, it's, it's been taken off here of late. And so uh, if you haven't signed up for the newsletter, please consider doing so. We'll, uh, we'll just come at you twice a month, essentially on each day the podcast comes out. Uh, so, uh, for those who've signed up for the newsletter, thank you for those who've donated. Thank you. And for those who've left ratings and reviews, thank you so much. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the water values podcast in mind. As you go about your daily business, water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me thank you for tuning into the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice further this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment i'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.